certainly a blessing to be here with you this morning. We want to welcome you here to La Prada Drive Church of Christ. If you're here with us for the first time this morning, we want to especially welcome you as well. We want to take some time to let us introduce ourselves after services, get to know you and your family a little bit better, and we pray that hopefully you'll find a home here at La Prada. About two months ago, I started this, this two-part study on the idea of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. The last time we talked, we talked about biblical manhood. We discussed what society views and what society values in a man, and we called it the three Bs. We said that by today's standard, we judge a man by the ball field, the bedroom, and the billfold. And those three things are how you judge a man according to modern American and oftentimes world culture. We then compared that to the text of the scripture and discussed the dispensation of time in which manhood was at the apex point of what man was envisioned to be. And using that dispensation of time of Adam prior to the fall, we derived three things that a biblical man must be committed to. We said that a biblical man must be committed to God-honoring labor. Secondly, a biblical man must be committed to God's law. And then thirdly, a biblical man is committed to God's plan for the family unit. And that was three things that encompass most of what a biblical man is, or at least should be striving to get to. And this morning is the second part of that little two-part series in which we want to turn our eyes and shift our focus to womanhood. When I say womanhood, what is the first thing that you think of? When I say womanhood, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? Maybe some of us think of characteristics of a woman, the things that makes a woman who she is, tenderness, compassion, kindness, things like that. Maybe some of us are thinking of the roles that a woman often has, a mother, a grandmother, sometimes great-grandmother. We think of the joy that comes along with those things. Maybe when I say womanhood, you think of the idea of modern-day feminism, the push for complete equality and sexual freedom, which are two of the branches of what feminist movement goes for. This is what a lot of people think of when we say the word womanhood. And I'll tell you, just like we talked about last time, as a society and as a culture, we have been lied to. We've been sold a bill of goods as to what exactly a woman is and what a woman should act like, what a woman should think like, and what a woman should value. We had the three catchy Bs for the men. We'll go with three catchy Cs for the woman. We judge a woman based off of these three Cs, curves, clothes, and character. Curves, clothes, and character. Those are the three Cs that we judge a woman by. And these three Cs have led to an all-out breakdown in society as to what a woman truly is. You see, we judge a woman by her curves. Now this is a kind of a catch-all kitchen sink style term here, but what we're referring to is we judge a woman by their body. We judge a woman by the shape of their body, going, you know, women spend hours and hours and hours looking at unrealistic, unhealthy Instagram models and TikTok videos and magazines that show what society has deemed to be the ideal woman. The ideal woman in today's culture has zero focus on demeanor, zero focus on inner beauty, but focuses on whether or not they have an hourglass figure, how defined their curves are. I want to share with you some statistics from an article we find, psychology study that was focused in the, uh, the year 2000. The article is called, As Girls Mature, 
dads and daughters grow apart. And some of these statistics and quotes are just baffling to me. One of, the, one of which of the quotes, quotes is that the majority of fathers interviewed stated as their daughters became quote-unquote shapely women, it became uncomfortable for them to show them the same fatherly physical affection, for example, hugs and forehead kisses, that they once did. Another statistic shows that daughters that feel an increased absence of physical comfort in the form of hugs and simply laying their head on a father's shoulder are more likely to find inappropriate affection from men, more likely to be abused, more likely to become pregnant, more likely to be manipulated, and more likely to enter detention centers. Another statistic shows an overwhelming majority of fathers in the U.S. feel a discomfitting sexual energy between themselves and their daughters as their daughters develop curves and advance through puberty. It's absolutely disturbing. It's absolutely disgusting and wrong what is happening in our culture. And I want you to know it's not their fault. They have been lied to because we judge a woman by her curves. We judge a woman by her looks. And a woman now becomes less of an individual and more a piece of meat. That is what society has taught us to believe. That is how we have been taught to act. So much so that fathers become physically unable to show their daughters physical affection when curves develop because of societal stigmas. Because we judge a woman by her curves. Secondly, we judge a woman by her clothes. And again, this is a catch-all statement of being judged by material things. We judge a woman by whether or not she has the nicest car. We judge a woman by what type of sunglasses she has. We judge a woman by what kind of purse she has. If it's not a Louis Vuitton, you better get right. We judge a woman by how big of a ring she has, how nice of earrings she's wearing. We judge by material things, and we judge a woman by her clothes. Lastly, we judge a woman oftentimes by her character, and this is not character in a good sense. We judge by almost how bad a woman's character is. We say a woman is cool and with the times when they pursue sexual freedom, when they sleep with whoever they want, when they go to all the parties, when they're always at the bar getting drunk with their friends. The problem is men in today's world want that kind of woman. And they judge whether they want that woman based on their character because that type of character is easy. It's easy to manipulate, easy to persuade, easy to control, also easier to assault and easier to molest. The woman who goes out and parties and gets drunk and goes home with the first guy she sees is the popular woman. That's what men want in today's culture. You see, we judge a woman based on character. And when you compile all these things, you can kind of start to see how we've lost as a society what a woman truly is. And what a woman acts like and what a woman values. And it's because of these issues and because of this degradation of what we believe a woman to be that we take the time to study God's plan for what womanhood actually is. And we study and figure out what God expects from him and what God wants from a woman. We want to focus on three things this morning in regards to biblical womanhood that encompass all of what God wants in a woman no matter where she is in life. Number one, a biblical woman must be committed to being reverent in behavior. Number two, a biblical woman must be committed to the growth of the kingdom of God. And number three, a biblical woman must be committed to God's plan for the family unit and the institution of marriage. 
So let's take a look at each of these a little closer this morning. Turn with me to the book of Titus chapter 2, or you can follow along with the board, whichever one is easier for you this morning. But we want to read a text from this chapter as we begin. Titus 2 is is probably a chapter most of us are, are fairly familiar with. In fact, I bet most of us here know exactly what Titus 2 is talking about. But unfortunately, in the Christian community, we're more familiar with the phrase Titus 2 or have a Titus 2 type of influence more than we are with what the passage actually says. Paul writes to Titus and teaches Titus things regarding the church, regarding relations in the church. And so the majority of the text written to Titus is how Titus should perform actions of an evangelist. And the only time that interpretation doesn't apply is if Paul says specifically, teach these groups of people to do something. And that's what we see in Titus chapter 2. Paul instructs Titus on how women should act in a Christian manner. Titus chapter 2 and verse 3 says, The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Notice with me in the text, Paul says to to Titus that the aged women be in behavior that becometh holiness. ESV says that is reverence in behavior, reverent in behavior. Verses 4 and 5, the context is going to switch. It speaks to the idea of women who have proven themselves in the area of loving their husbands and loving their children, teaching women who have yet to prove themselves to do the exact same thing. And we'll touch on that a little later. But notice here in verse 3, the context is that women should be reverent in behavior or be in behavior that becometh holiness. Now, what does that mean? It means our behavior, our dress, our character... Our day-to-day conduct is God-fearing, God-honoring, and Christ-focused in nature. Read with me a passage out of the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting verse 3, says, Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair, and of wearing of gold, and of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Notice the first part of this text here, whose adorning is not that of outward appearance and apparel. The first way in which biblical womanhood is reverent in behavior is through dress and appearance. Reverent in the way she dresses. And the reason this is such a heavy topic and the reason we harp on this in this sermon is because as a society we have been lied to. We've been bamboozled. You see, we've been taught as a society that a woman's self-worth, the entirety of her value and everything she should strive to be, stems from and generates whether or not a man is willing to lust after her. That's what we're taught. And so the consequence of that societal norm becomes the degradation of apparel and that ladies now wear. You know, I I go shopping with, with Bailey occasionally, and the things we see in the store sometimes are just absolutely ridiculous. It's like you, you look at a piece of clothing and it's like, you know, there just needs to be like more, you know, like more material, you know, like maybe if, if I can take that dress over there and that dress over there and just kind of combine them, we can get something that Bailey can wear to church, right? But that's what's sold in stores. 
That's what's popular in today's culture is the clothing that shows the most amount of curves and the most amount of skin so that you can have men lust after you. Now, I want you to know this morning I am not an advocate for turtlenecks in 105-degree weather. And I'm not saying you have to have a dress that covers your ankle at all times. I'm not saying that this morning. Don't take that away. But what I want you to understand this morning is the contrast between what the world says and what God's word says. There was a poem on the radio in 1965 called, If I Was the Devil. And it goes through this, this situation and it says, if I was the devil, I would do this. If I was the devil, I would do this. And at the end of the conclusion is... If I was the devil, I'd just keep on doing what I'm doing because it's working. And then there was a group that on social media that put out a 21st century version of that phrase, if I was the devil. And in that video, one of the statements was this. It said, if I was the devil, I would show you images of fake bodies and make them more attractive than real ones. So your perspective of real bodies changes. Two points I want us to understand, then we'll move on from this point. Number one. You can be beautiful and lusted after in the eyes of a man and be absolutely disgusting in the sight of God. And the opposite is equally true. You can be beautiful in the sight of God, but not be wanted by a worldly man who values things that are not pure and are not virtuous. Brethren, a biblical woman is reverent in the way in which she adorns herself. And that leads us to the second way in which a b biblical woman is reverent, and that's reverence in, in character. You see, society today has taught us to raise girls as another one of the boys, and that doesn't mean to raise them like biblical men. It means to raise them like immature boys, to be loud, to be obnoxious, to be self-focused, to be wholly consumed about being the main character of everybody's life. Society has taught women to act as the center of the world, and from that stems character flaws, stems someone who is self-honoring, who is boastful, and certainly not concerned with what God wants. I want you to think about some of the women we talk about in scriptures, people like Sarah and Mary, Deborah, Hagar, Ruth, Naomi, Abigail, Hannah, Phoebe, Priscilla, all those people. You know what all of these women had in common? Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God, of great price. Their adorning is a meek and a gentle spirit. It's a spirit of humility, a spirit of gratitude towards God, not a spirit that seeks to be the center of attention, not a spirit that seeks to glorify my own self, but a spirit that looks in the mirror in the morning and says, how can I glorify God today? What can I do to show the love of Christ to those around me? How can I align my actions with what we're going to talk about in a minute to grow the kingdom of God? Brethren, meekness and gentleness and self-control is something we all need to be striving for, men included. But oftentimes the world takes that meekness, takes that quiet, that humble spirit, and we flip it into a negative thing. The world says that meekness means you don't have a voice. And meekness means you aren't strong. And gentleness means you can't help yourself. And so with this fourth wave of feminism, they've changed the narrative and said to compensate for that, women need to be loud. They need to be boisterous, need to be overly confident, need to be prideful. Why? Because they confuse meekness for weakness. They think that because biblically-based women exhibit meekness and self-control and gentleness, that makes them weak. 
God blessed me with a, a wonderful, amazing, and beautiful wife to walk this life with. And I'll tell you from firsthand experience, she's one of the gentlest souls I've ever known. Exhibits the most meekness out of anyone I've ever met, which is one of the many reasons that I married her. But I want you to know this morning, in spite of all that meekness and gentleness and self-control, sits the strongest woman that I know. The person that I go to and cry with when I'm overwhelmed. The person that I lay all my difficult decisions down at their feet and ask for advice and counsel. The one person in my life who can calm me down no matter what the trial is. The person in my life that can take a situation in which we've been wronged and put a smile on her face and somehow navigate it to show Christ. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like weakness to me. Ladies, the easy way out is to let your emotions take control. The easy way out is to get loud and make sure my voice is heard in every situation. The easy way out is to be rude. The easy way out is to be abrasive in situations in which I've been wronged, in situations in which I've been hurt. The hard way is to turn the other cheek. The choice that requires overwhelming amounts of strength is the spirit that says, I'm going to choose meekness. The choice that requires strength is the one that says, even though everything inside of me wants to blow up, wants to be the center of attention, wants to be heard, wants to be known, I find a way to show gentleness and teach people who Christ is. Biblical womanhood is reverent in character. Third thing we want to notice, biblical womanhood is reverent in conduct. And we've read a portion of 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to show you the first two verses of this chapter. Verse 1 says, Likewise, you wives... Be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Oftentimes, the only reason we ever know this passage is in the context of divorce. And don't lie to yourself either. I'll plead the fifth. I'm the guiltiest one here. The only reason we know this passage is because we look at Matthew and talk about divorce. We give reasons for divorce. And then we turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and say, well, hold on. How do you know that unbelieving husband won't be converted by the believing wife so she should stay with him? That's, that's what we use this passage for. Guilty as charged. But we miss the main context of the message. This passage in its entirety is speaking to the conduct and the character of a biblical woman and a biblical wife. In verses 1 through 7. And so what we need to notice and focus on here is not the idea of divorce, but rather the qualities of a biblical woman and the qualities of a biblical wife and what those qualities exhibit. Peter tells us that, yes, in that situation in which the husband may be won by the wife is because of the wife's chaste conversation. The word conversation in the Greek is the word anastropy. I think it's Strong's 391, which means conduct or behavior conduct or behavior in context the way in which i conduct myself and my behavior has a great influence over an unbeliever in first peter chapter 3 it just happens to be the one she's married to biblical womanhood is reverent god respecting god honoring in the activities and things in which i am involved you know one of the things the the oldest girls during summer work wanted to study this year was how to share the gospel and it was a great choice. Anthony actually came over to the house and talked to the older girls about how to share the gospel. And of course, I'm thinking, you know, he's going to go into how to introduce the topic, where to start, how to actually find the scriptures, so on and so forth, which he does. But he brought up a huge point we don't often consider. 
He first talked about barriers to sharing the gospel. And of course, I'm like, well, sure, Anthony, let's hear it. Maybe they don't want to respond. Maybe there's personal barriers in that person's life that they don't want to respond. But where Anthony took it was personal barriers that hinder me from sharing the gospel. Meaning what aspects of my life, what aspects of my conduct, what aspects of my speech, what aspects of my behavior prevent me from sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's kind of what Peter's getting at here. Are the things we are involved with... Our social media posts, our photos, are those reverent in conduct. Reverent, God-fearing in conduct isn't at the bar on Saturdays and then waking up to make sure we make church on Sunday morning with a hangover. Reverent in conduct isn't shaming other ladies on Saturday and then on Sunday posting Psalms 139 on Facebook and claiming I'm a Christian. Biblical, man, biblical womanhood is reverent in conduct, focused on what God wants them to be focused on, focused on pleasing him. Young men here this morning, I want you to be thinking about as we go through this message, what kind of woman you're looking for. If she's loud, if she's obnoxious, if she's self-centered, she doesn't qualify. If she's using abrasive speech, if she's using language she shouldn't be using, she doesn't qualify. If her manner of dress is inappropriate, if it's said in a way to make men lust after her, if it's revealing, either there needs to be some more discipleship or she doesn't qualify to be your wife. Young men, I want you to ask yourself, is the girl you're marrying or thinking about dating or thinking about proposing to, is she reverent in behavior? Because a biblical Christian woman is reverent in behavior, and that's what we're looking for. If she is not, she does not qualify to be your wife. Remember, Proverbs teaches us he who finds a wife finds a good thing. It doesn't say he who finds a woman who's out in the world takes 10 years of dating and marriage before she finally decides to open a book and try and figure out what a biblical woman is, finds a wife. It says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. She exhibits characteristics of a biblical woman before I enter into that relationship. Does that mean she's perfect? No, it does not. Does that mean she can't make mistakes? No, it does not. But it better means she's striving to be a biblical woman, trying to be reverent in behavior because that's what biblical womanhood is committed to. Second thing we want to notice this morning is that biblical womanhood is committed to the growth of the kingdom of God. Committed to the growth of the kingdom of God. Three ways in which a biblical woman is committed that we want to take an individual look at. Number one, she is committed to evangelism within her home. She is committed to the growth of the kingdom of God through inter-family evangelism and discipleship. Notice with me a few statistics I want us to look at. The average father spends five hours a week in direct conversation and contact with the kids versus the mother spending 14 hours. Another stat shows mothers spend almost double the amount of time in critical conversations with a child than a father does. One of those topics is religion. Now, does that mean fathers need to step up and spend more time with their kids? Sure. Does this mean mothers are absolutely perfect because they spend more time than fathers? No, it does not. But here's the reality. God set it up this way. God set it up so that women would be the keepers of the home to be chased to spend the most time with the children. He, he committed men to provide, to labor, and to lead. But with that situation comes the reality that mothers, the kids, spend the most amount of time 
with you in the home. Which often leads to the fact that you're the one who's teaching and discipling the children most of the time. That responsibility is also the fathers, don't take that away, but you have the most influence and the most time with the children. Biblical women are committed to teaching that which is good, teaching their children and the youth around them to love Christ. And understand this morning, this doesn't just have to be through a Bible study. I don't have to open up a Bible every time I want to teach my kids something. I don't just have to answer difficult questions every time I want my child to learn what a biblical woman is. I've learned so many things from my mother and from my grandmother, from my aunts that didn't come in the form of looking at a Bible. And I still do today. It's one thing for my mom to tell me to find joy in life's trials. It's another thing to watch her fight cancer with a smile on her face. It's one thing for her to show me I need to be meek and gentle. It's another thing to grow up watching her exhibit those qualities. It's one thing for her to tell me what kind of woman I should look for in a marriage, what kind of woman I want raising my children. It's another thing for her to show me through her actions that that's the kind of wife I need. And if you don't think it's true, in the third row sits an exact replica of my mother. She did pretty well. Timothy gained his faith from his mother and grandmother. 2 Timothy 1 and 5 says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that it is in thee also. The faith of so many women is imparted onto their children, sons and daughters, and onto their grandchildren. Ladies here this morning, you have more influence than you realize. So teach that which is good teach them to have a relationship with Jesus. At the end of the day, how many recipes and how much time I spend watching YouTube with my daughter isn't going to matter. How much math or how much baseball I teach my son isn't going to matter. What matters is whether or not I'm going to find my kids in heaven with me one day. So focus on it. Teach it. Be committed to it. Number two, a biblical woman is committed to the growth of the kingdom of God through intercongregational evangelism and encouragement. Or committed to the growth of the kingdom of God within the church. I want to start by saying La Prada would not be as successful as we are. We wouldn't be where we are. We couldn't operate as we do with functions and services and everything we do on a weekly basis without every single one of the women here. It just would not happen. And I think you'll see here in a minute that the first century church as a whole and the church today wouldn't be here without instrumental vital contributions from women within the first century. Christianity had exploded in the first century. And Christians were being persecuted. If you haven't heard it enough during Wednesday night Revelation series, Christians were being persecuted. And what we see throughout the early history of the church is that the vital role women played in the expansion of the kingdom of God. Romans 16 and 1 gives us a quick little glimpse into what this role might have looked like. Romans 16 and 1, this is Paul writing to the church at Rome. He says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord as become a saint, and that you assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a succor of many and of myself also. Notice what Paul says to the church at Rome. And remember, when these letters were received, the elders and leaders would read those letters, and that's what secular history shows us, to the whole congregation. It's not like every member got their hands on that letter. 
And so the elders are reading this letter from the Apostle Paul. And you know, he was probably famous at that time, so they know who he is when it's coming to him. And he's reading this. And he mentions this here in Romans 16. Well, it wasn't Romans 16 back then, but at the end of his letter, he mentions, Commend unto you Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea. And he goes on to say, Whatever she needs assistance with, whatever she's doing in the kingdom of God, you find a way to help. Whatever she asks of you, you need to make sure it gets done because she's laboring in the kingdom. And this is read aloud to the entire congregation there. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister. You want to talk about breaking barriers. There's neither male nor female, but all the one through Christ, right? Phoebe and so many other women are mentioned, and Paul comes in gratitude for the vital work that these women did and accomplished in the beginning of the church, in the early church. Amongst immense persecution and trials, women were often involved with the growth of local congregations there. In fact, many of the churches met in people's homes, and secular history shows oftentimes it was women. And Paul commends them for that. I want to tell you this morning, anyone tells you, if anyone tells you that a man is more important than you or that women have no place in the expansion of the kingdom of God, they are a liar, plain and simple. Women were absolutely essential to the church in the first century, and I want you to know, if you haven't heard it before, you're absolutely essential to the church here at La Prada. But as a biblical woman, it is your job to make it that way. It's your role to influence and to spread encouragement and growth to engage with people on a weekly basis and reach out. You may not be able to publicly speak. You may not be able to lead songs and pray publicly according to the scriptures, but I want to tell you this morning, sometimes it's the watering that's more important than who's doing the planting. And ladies, your role is so much more than you think it is or that the world tells you it is. So use it to further the kingdom of God. Thirdly, a biblical woman is committed to furthering the kingdom of God through worldly evangelism. And all I mean by worldly evangelism is growth and development of the kingdom of God outside of my home and outside of my local congregation. The common thought in today's society is that man alone should be doing the evangelizing. Men alone should be doing all the spreading of the gospel, and I want to tell you that's just not true. Think of Priscilla and Aquila. Apollos in the book of Acts is standing at the synagogue teaching the baptism of John. And Aquila and Priscilla come to him, and in red there you can see it. They expound unto him the way of God more perfectly. They teach him the way of God, and the impact of that is incalculable. Look at the, the verses in green there. It says in verse 28, For he mightily convinced the Jews, speaking of Apollos, and that would publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Paul would go on in 1 Corinthians 3 to say, I have planted, Apollos watered. But God gave the increase. The influence of Priscilla willing to grow the kingdom of God through personal evangelism outside of her home and outside of her local congregation is seen 2,000 years later. Biblical womanhood is committed to the growth of the kingdom of God through interfamilial evangelism, intercongregational evangelism, and evangelism that exists outside of those two. Young men here this morning, is the woman you're thinking about the girl you're in a relationship with is she devoted to the kingdom of God. We talked a little bit about it earlier, but she'll be the one that's with your kids the most, the one that teaches your kids, the one that your kids are going to turn to. Is she committed to the church? 
Is she willing and able to spend time laboring in the kingdom? Is she willing to help prepare meals and reach out to the sick? Is she willing to make phone calls to comfort them? Young men, that's the woman that we want. That's the woman that we're looking for. Not the one who isn't engaged and wants absolutely nothing to do with the church. We want the one that's fired up. We want the one who's involved, who's being moved, who's actively making a difference in the lives of the people here. That's the one we're looking for. That's the woman we want. Biblical womanhood is committed to growing the kingdom of God. Final thing we want to notice this morning. Biblical womanhood is committed to God's plan for the family unit. Committed to God's plan for the family unit. We talked about the idea of of being committed to God's plan for the family a lot in the biblical manhood sermon part of the series. We talked about the man's role. We talked about the role of a husband and the role of the father. We talked about how God designated man to provide, designated man to lead the home, and designated man to love the wife. And he set up this marriage covenant to mirror Christ and his bride, the church. And our marriages, if lived according to the word of God, should reflect and show the world around us the relationship between Christ and his church. But we are imperfect people that create imperfect marriages. I want us to understand something this morning as we get started on this last point. Progressive Christianity is a false religion. Progressive Christianity is a false religion. Now, what does that mean? It means that a religion that is based on an inspired book that does not change, that does not falter, that does not fail, cannot possibly be changed to fit my modern-day needs and still remain true. If I claim to base my religion and my faith on something that never changes, and then I adapt it to fit modern-day problems, that religion is no longer true. Progressive Christianity or Christianity that changes and adapts to myself is wrong. Now, why do I bring this up? Because biblical womanhood is committed to God's plan for the family and the role of the wife was instituted all the way back in the garden and it does not change. We touched on the garden and the creation of Eve from Adam and how they became one flesh. We brought that idea of one flesh forward into the New Testament with the book of Ephesians. And I want us to pick up there again this morning. If you would, grab a Bible in front of you. We'll turn to the book of Ephesians in chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. We'll start in verse 22 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22. It says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. 
a woman who is committed to God's plan for the family is submissive to God and therefore submissive to her husband and reverences her own husband. A biblical wife is submissive to her husband, plain and simple. And that is not a popular statement in today's world. And I want you to know it's not a popular statement in denominational churches either. Remember, progressive Christianity is a false religion. Most Christians, including the world who are not Christians, look at the relationship between a husband and a wife and think God got the narrative wrong. They believe in one of these three categories when it comes to submission. Number one, they believe submission doesn't have to exist. Say God is sexist. He's against women and wives, and he shouldn't have wrote that in the text. It was an error. Therefore, they take the one flesh idea, and marriage becomes a 50-50 partnership where there is no leader in the home. Number two, some believe submission in regards to the husband-wife relationship, the marital covenant, is mutual in nature. They use the idea of being submissive to one another that Paul teaches in Ephesians and connect that to the marriage covenant and say the husband should submit to the wife and the wife should submit to the husband. And there again, there is no leader. Number three, some believe if there is to be submission, it should only be conditional. It should be conditional. Meaning the wife only submits to the husband when it's convenient and when there's agreeance on a situation and on a decision. I want you to know this morning, all three of these are completely and utterly unscriptural. A biblical wife and a biblical woman submits to her own husband. Practical application of what this looks like on a daily basis. Situation number one, there's a decision that needs to be made in the Hanley household. Bailey comes to me, we sit down at the table, we discuss what the issue is, we're in complete agreement. decision is made, done deal. Situation one is over and done with. Situation number two, same issue, same decision, but we're in disagreement now. I evaluate whether or not the decision has to be made at this current time. If not, I postpone the decision. I come together with Bailey. We study the word of God. We pray intensely until we can either come to a compromise or a complete agreement, and then the decision is made. Situation number three, same issue, same decision. Now we're in complete disagreement with one another, but the decision has to be made right now. As the leader of my house and as the head of my home, I recognize her concerns, but at the end of the day, it's my responsibility as a husband to make that decision. And at the end of the day, it's Bailey's responsibility as a wife who submits to the Lord to submit to the decision that I'm making. A few things we need to notice in all these situations. Number one, in every, every one of those situations, the wife is in submission to the husband. Two of those scenarios, we end up agreeing, one of which we disagreed, but in all three, there was submission happening. Number two, in all of those situations, the one who was making the decision is the husband. And we'll talk about it in a second, but the one who will answer for that decision one day is not Bailey, it's me. As a leader of my home, I will answer for the decisions that I made. I asked my parents of almost 30 years of marriage how many times submission in this situation number three has really been an issue, and they said maybe two times, maybe twice. And I want to tell you why that is. In the marriage covenant, there are different roles. One leads, one submits, one loves, one respects, but we are still one flesh. And when I come to a point in which a decision has to be made in my household, 1 Corinthians 13 should hit you like a freight train. Am I truly seeking not my own in this decision that I'm making? 
Am I doing what's best for my family at this time, or am I being selfish? And women, news flash for you this morning. If you didn't know, your husband is not perfect. Your husband is not going to make the right decision 100% of the time. But here's the reality. When you submit to your godly husband and it turns out the decision was wrong, do not gloat over him. Don't toss him down. Don't throw it back in his face. As the head of the house, husbands are judged severely. Every single one of those decisions that I make, I will one day answer for and I will be responsible for. You will not. So what should be happening is prayer and lots of it in that situation. Pray for him when he makes a bad call. Don't throw it in his face. Because truthfully, if your husband is actually seeking not his own, if your husband is actually dedicated to God, if he's dedicated to leading his family after God, when he makes a bad call, it should kill him inside. Why? Because he recognizes he'll answer for that someday. Ladies, if you have a man who willy-nilly makes decisions without consulting you, makes decisions easily when you're in disagreement, it's his way or the highway, no matter what, I want to be point blank this morning and tell you he needs to learn the fear of the Lord. That's a sad thing. The truth is I am the head and leader of my house because my godly wife allows me to be. Plain and simple. As a biblical wife, you should want to submit to your husband. You should want to seek opportunities to respect your husband. You see, the idea of submission has never been a negative thing until progressive Christianity came about. Submission is a characteristic we should all strive to have. Ephesians tells us to submit to one another. It also tells slaves to submit to their masters or employees to employers. As bodies of this church and as members here, we are in submission to the elders. And all of us here should be in submission to God and his will. If you aren't, we should probably get that covered this morning. Think about what marriage represents. Christ and his church. Husbands here, Christ washed his disciples' feet. What are you doing? Christ loved and broke boundaries beyond measure. What are you doing? Christ took negative comments, reviling, hateful things for his church. What are you doing? Christ went to the cross and died for his bride. What are you willing to do for yours? Be a husband that is worthy of submitting to. Men, I want to be clear this morning. If your wife has an issue with submission, sometimes it's not her. You might be looking at the problem in the mirror. Biblical womanhood is committed to God's plan for the family unit. And that includes the idea of a godly wife. Secondly, biblical womanhood is committed to God's plan for the family and motherhood. There are two extremes that we take when it comes to women and their role in the home versus their role in their careers. One of which is women should never work and should be solely committed to the home, to the family, and they should never work a day in their lives. The other of which is they should be solely devoted to their careers and it's the husband's job or whoever else's job to figure out the family and they pursue career over family. I want to tell you neither one of those is accurate and one of them is downright sinful. There is not a verse that says women should not work. In fact, we have scriptures that show us the exact opposite. Think of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. She considereth a field and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hand she planteth a vineyard. She maketh fine linen and selleth it, and delivereth girdles unto the merchant. Think of Priscilla from earlier. 
when Paul meets them for the first time, he says their occupation, speaking of the husband and the wife, was tent making. So working outside of the home is not something that's frowned upon for a woman in the totality of Scripture. But recognize there is a major problem when a woman, or a man for that matter, puts career ahead of their family. And what we need to fully understand is it is the wife and the mother's primary job to be focused on the children and keepers at home. The man is the provider. The most important thing you can focus on is your children. And the growth of the church, like we talked about earlier, but that does not mean you cannot ever work. A couple verses to consider here. Psalms 127 and 3 says, Lo, children are an heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of his womb, or the fruit of the womb, is his reward. Making sure those kids have a foundation of truth, making sure they know who Jesus is, raising them in the admonition of the Lord. I've failed if my kid becomes a doctor but can't tell me who Christ is. Keep that in mind from earlier. Second Timothy, the faith that was in Lois and Eunice was passed down to Timothy. And that faith and the actions that Timothy took have changed millions and is changing you today. Don't neglect or prioritize career and hobbies or anything else over your family. Because as stated earlier, they are the future of the church. Lastly, biblical womanhood is committed to God's plan for the family, even if I'm not married and I'm not a mother. We talked about Titus 2 heavily this morning. That the aged women teach the younger women to love their husbands and love their children. If you aren't in a marriage and you have no kids, you need to be seeking diligently opportunities to learn from women who have proven themselves in these same roles. Learning to live a life of a woman that pleases God. As a wife that respects and submits to God and to her husband. A mother that raises kids to have the fear of the Lord. Learn from examples that are sitting here. They're all around you. All you have to do is ask. We've been talking about womanhood all morning, but if you didn't realize, I am simply a man exegeting scriptures pertaining to womanhood. I am not a woman. I can never be a biblical woman. You need to find steady, grounded examples to learn from, and I pray that you will. Young men here this morning, is your future mate committed to God's plan for the family? If she has a problem with that plan or has a problem with the role that God wants her to play, she doesn't qualify. Young men, I want to give you a piece of advice. If your mother has a funny feeling about somebody you're dating, you need to, re- you need to listen. There's a reason she has a funny feeling. Because you need a godly wife to help you excel at being a godly husband and a godly fo- father. We need to be committed together with a kingdom-focused view to getting to heaven. That's what we're looking for. You need her wisdom, her guidance, her prayers, her healing, and so much more, but she has to be committed to her role in your one flesh covenant for that to work. We're looking for a woman that's committed to God's plan for the family unit. Young ladies here this morning in search of that biblical man, in search of that godly husband, that godly father that we talked about last time, recognize first that you need to be a biblical woman to attract the right man. This morning we've discussed three points that I believe encompass or at least scratch the surface of biblical womanhood. We've said biblical womanhood is committed to three things, committed to being reverent in behavior, committed to the growth of the kingdom of God, and committed to God's plan for the family unit. I want to leave you with a quote from a man named John Piper. He's a dean of a 
of a uh, Bible school up in Minnesota. He says this. He says, I commend to you this truth. The ultimate purpose of God in history is the display of the glory of his son and dying for his bride. God has created man as male and female because there are aspects of Christ's glory which would not be known if they were not reflected in the complementary differences between manhood and womanhood. Therefore, true womanhood is a distinctive calling of God to display the glory of his son in ways that would not be displayed if there were no womanhood. Married womanhood has its unique potential for magnifying Christ that single womanhood does not have. Single womanhood has its unique potential for magnifying Christ, which married womanhood does not have. So whether you marry or remain single, do not settle for wimpy theology. It is beneath you. God is too great. Christ is too glorious. True womanhood is too strategic. Don't waste it. Your womanhood, your true womanhood, was made for the glory of Christ. This morning, you have an opportunity to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't leave that opportunity sitting on the table. Don't leave here today not knowing where you would go if you died. Leave here today knowing that your salvation is secure. If we can help you or be of any assistance to you this morning, we would ask that you come as we stand and as we sing.